House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And now we are at the interview part of the show. Um, today we have a, a writer um, that has uh, writes a lot of true stories, and and the one that caught my eye was of course Fire in the Big Big House, and it's America's deadliest prison disaster, and he's got something else he's working on. So we're going to talk about those. Um, thank you for taking the time, uh, Mitchell Roth. Thank you for having me. Well, well, Mitchell, let's let's start with um, what led you into to writing. Um, these kinds of stories? Well, sometimes, since I'm one of the few historians um, uh, that's in a, a criminology department in the country, um, I basically look for stories that have a criminological bent and um, that have never been told before and, um, and try and write books and kind of discover, you know, why it hasn't been written about. And uh, my last book, um, of course, uh, Fire in the Big House, was such a book. I mean, it was the worst prison disaster in American history. 320 inmates died uh, in a fire, um, and yet we know about, you know, the Triangle Shirtwaist fire and all these other ones with substantially less um, victims. So, you know, I'd always wondered, well, why didn't they write something about this? Why anybody write a book? So, you know, I think part of it is because they were prisoners, considered kind of non-entities, and I was wondering why Columbus... Uh, where it took place, Columbus, Ohio, why they don't even have any type of memorial or anything like that. Um, you walk, walk by the shirtwaist factory and there's a memorial there. Um, so anyway, you know, I looked deeper into it and uh, I found a lot of parallels um, with uh, the prison overcrowding and America's love affair with the prison um, in the modern era. You know, remember this took place in 1930 and uh you know, so, uh, you know, they had a lot stricter laws back then. Uh, they were, uh, had uh, longer sentences just like today. People were being locked up for, you know, lots of new federal crimes. You had prohibition going on and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, anyway, I did a lot of research in the archives and I was really, you know, there's a lot of serendipity when you're writing a book that, you know, no one has written before. And, I heard from someone uh, found out I was writing this, and they sent me an interview they'd been doing with a uh, survivor of the fire um, in the 1980s, and they never ended up doing anything with it. And so she sent me a copy of that. Um, and prisoners rarely record, you know, their experiences in prison, so that really helped. Um, another person that helped was uh, the crime novelist uh, Chester Hines. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, your, you know, of him, but he was like, you know, mm -hmm. one. He, he created these um, African-American detectives that worked in Harlem, and he was in the prison during this, and his early work um, is based on some of the experiences in the fire. Um, but in any case, um, you know, until I think about five years ago, it was the deadliest fire in any prison in the world until one in Honduras recently, mm -hmm. and, it took, and, it, it, and it killed in less than an hour because of smoke inhalation. So um, why do you think that is? But like, not so much the, the killing part. But why do you think such a such a large um, fire that killed so many is just never talked about? Is it because of something they did wrong? Well, I, I think um, you know, there's a, uh, they weren't real sympathetic uh, victims to a great extent. I mean, you're talking about rapists and murders and all that. You're not talking about immigrant working women working in a you know in a 
uh, sweat factory. You're not talking about, you know, people that, you know, are somewhere, uh, you know, just at their job. You're talking about people that are in there, you know, doing time. So I think, uh, number one, I think most family members, you know, probably don't want to, you know, bring them up and kind of memorialize, you know, their relatives in jail. And uh, so, you know, you don't have a lot of accounts from any family members and really virtually none from any of the prisoners uh, from that era. And uh, so I, I, I think, you know, that's that's a big part of it. And, um, you know, I... I you know, I was walking around the city of Columbus, Ohio, you know, you know, sure, there's been a lot of history there, but, you know, since they tore the prison down about 20 years ago, um, you know, I guess a lot of people don't realize it was downtown, it was one of these big houses, and, um, you know, no one knew about it, and just like the book I'm uh, working on right now about um, this you know, double family annihilator, and then my previous book uh, to that was called Convict Cowboys. And it was the first history of the Texas Prison Rodeo. Nobody had ever written a book on that either. Hmm. So, um, you know. How do you find you these know, stories? Prisoners. How do you find these, actually? Like when you talk about the convict cowboys and, and, and this big uh, disaster and the fire, how would, you, how would you find out about them? Well, quite often um, I'm researching another book and I come across stories. Um, and I, You know, I... I feel like I know a lot about a lot um, as far as history of crime and punishment and so forth. And uh, and being older, I've heard a lot. And, uh, you know, so it kind of, but when I come across something, so, and I had never heard of it before, you know, I make a note to maybe uh, look at it uh, later on. And uh, in the case of uh, Fire in the Big House, um, you know, that I was writing a book, uh, a textbook on uh, crime and criminal justice uh, in America, the history of it, and came across this, and it was, you know, curious, because it ha did have uh, some uh, ephemeral impact on, you know, prisons around the country, making them a little safer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, uh, so I, I find, I, I come across these things. Uh, th this book that I'm working on right now on this guy, G George Hassel, he uh, killed his family of four in 1917 in California, buried them under the house. Uh, about ten years later, nine years later, he's in Texas, uh, marries his uh, brother's wife after the brother died, and uh, ends up murdering the wife and her eight kids um, almost nine years later. Meanwhile, they haven't found the bodies for the first four he killed, and he doesn't admit to it. Um, and tell them where to find the bodies until right before um, his um, execution uh, in Huntsville. So, um, you know, a lot of people don't know this story because, you know, uh, it brings up a lot of other subject matter because I teach courses on serial homicide and mass murder, and there's a little bit of both of these, um, you know, classifications, you know, in the story of uh, this character. Hmm. And... Um, and so, and I wouldn't, the way I heard about it, about 20 years ago, I had a student in one of my murder classes, and he said, well, you know, my great-grandfather was the fifth white person uh, electrocuted in Texas. And, you know, like he was proud of that. I said, congratulations, you know, like he won the Nobel Prize or something. So I said, well, you know, do you have any, you know, family documents or whatever? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we have, we, we've been researching the history for a long time. And he brings me uh, this you know, big history with some pictures and things like that uh, of it, and I held on to it knowing that this might be something I want to do in the future. And, you know, this the past couple of years have been a time where, you know, I finished all my writing projects and was I wanted to do something different, and uh, it was a perfect time to, you know, to, uh, 
you know, take on this project, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the character is bigger than life. I mean, just this guy, George Hassel, um, you know, he, he would expectorate in the courtroom. He could hit any object that, you know, you know, you could believe he strangled uh, 11 kids with his bare hands, you know, in the two, two events and not a shred of remorse. And, uh, you know, just an interesting character that I'm learning more and more about as I, you know, search Ancestry.com and all these others. And what I found is almost every story about him is wrong. You know, the dates are wrong. Everybody, you know, that's written about him has used his confession kind of as their uh, template. And his confession is completely out of whack when you, you know, actually look at the background um, and find out certain dates that he couldn't possibly have done this or that. Um, but he did do these 13 uh, killings, that's for sure. So I've got to give him credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> was it easier for, for someone like that to commit these types of crimes and get away with it back in 1917 as compared to now? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, they've been the, 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 his uh, common-law wife and three kids were reported missing by the family uh, in, in 1917. And, you know... The police who went to the house didn't even dig or look under. Today, you would have, um, you know, more technology for looking under the ground and stuff. And, you know, the only way they found out that the bodies were there is George, you know, told somebody and they drew a map and sent it to the cops in uh, Whittier, California. <laughs> and so you would have thought the first investigation, you know, would have been better. But then I've seen similar investigations, uh, you know, in the modern era where people, you know, are being held in the backyard and the see uh, you know the uh workers come to the house looking for someone being abused and they're held in the back and they never find them so you know police work uh you know depends on the training you know of the police but today um you have many less serial killers and things like that simply for uh there's less linkage blindness be between police forces and and so forth yeah well you'd have nancy grace out on the scene <laughs> Yeah, 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 shrieking at somebody. Yeah, I'd be on the, on the news. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's this type of new cells. I mean, once yeah. they, you know, the, the, the articles about this guy are legion. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, known throughout the world and throughout the United States. And as I was researching these articles, I'm finding, you know, some, some other stories of other criminals that I had never heard of, in fact, I came across this guy that I'd never heard of before, and uh, he had a uh, restaurant, uh, a bar over in San Antonio. And uh, apparently, he had alligators, and he would—he uh, was a blue beard, and he would uh, hire a woman, he had an affair with her, um, and in some cases, kill and feed to the alligators. And um, you know, so I'm thinking this might be my next book. Maybe this will be my <laughs> Texas blue beard series. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Go with it. Uh, yeah. Do you, do you find that? Um the justice system nowadays and and the way it works and when i when i bring up nancy and stuff um do you think that too much is televised and 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 the action that happens in the courtroom is probably a bad thing or do you think it's an okay thing or where do you stand on how it is now well you know i you know it, i i love to watch these these shows and all of that you know it's uh, you know it leads it leads type thing you know you see a lot of repetition in the stories and, and that sort of thing yeah. um but i think uh you know in a lot of cases uh there, there's an edifying effect on it you know basically maybe it might open up somebody's eyes to you know abuse in the family 
Um, they might be able to connect the dots, you know, through some type of domestic crime or whatever. Um, you know, it's 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 one of those things where you know it depends on you know how you you know if, if you like uh, true crime uh, movies, true crime books. Um, I mean, it's mostly an entertainment factor. Uh, you know, a lot of the, and the TV shows, in fact, um, you know, really don't. They're great recruiting uh, tools for um, college. We have a forensic science program, and we have a body farm where I teach. And a lot of people, you know, want to get into the forensic science because they watch CSI and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I've had students say to me, well, you know, I didn't know you had to be good in science. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> they're watching it on TV. So, well, if you don't like biology, yeah. Yeah, forget about it. Yeah. And uh, But, uh, you know, it, it, it serves its purpose. Um, I, I don't think most of the shows... Um, you know, are you know overly scandalous and or or romanticize any of the characters. I get kind of tired of seeing the pantheon of serial killers. Though, you know, John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy. You know, the Hall of Fame of serial killers over and over and over again. Um, so, um, you know, but you know, Americans, you know, are very uh, educated about uh, the history of serial killers in America, and uh, that's one of the few things they're educated <laughs> about as far as history. I mean, I wish there were as many shows about, you know, crime fighters, you know, or, you know, lawyers or, you know, somebody involved, uh, you know, constructively in the justice system. Um, but people like to like these case studies of, um, of criminals because they are fascinating, especially because half the time you, you really never understand what, you know, what their purpose, you know, or motivations were in their crimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough tough one i i was sort of um thinking more along along the lines of uh you know like some of the cases where the whole trial is presented um through television and on daily basis because you oh know, yeah 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 you know because yeah. because it really affects like that we we've had kirk nermy and we've had a lot of people that have been in major trials even marcia clark and all that and and i just i they always talk about how stressful it was and how how the media which you know pictures of the nude pictures of them or this or that or they put on weight they changed their hair all this stuff and then then a lot of the people watching it kind of are you know people that hate them and there's people that love them and and um i don't know how you could do your job with that much well, I, think it, I think it's kind of hard um you know doing your job especially if you're um uh, the, the, the defense quite a bit, you know, um, you know, let alone the prosecution, uh, because there's a tendency sometimes for people to either identify or fall in love with the, you know, the perpetrator. Um, you know, they get a big following. Um, and also, too, there's a certain uh, vigilante, ex, you know, kind of uh, part of this. It's, you know, the media, you're being tried by the media to a great extent. You know, if you're telegenic, you know, it, it works to your favor. Um, if you're not, of course, it, it, it detracts. And, you know, for the people working on the scene, the Marsha Clarks and the F. Lee Baylors and, and so forth, and the rest of the, you know, people, and even today a lot of the ambulance chasers, um, you know, they, you know, they, I think a lot of them, uh, use it, uh, much like, uh, politicians use being a politician to become lobbyists. I think, you know, lawyers use this, you know, sometimes to get their own shows later on, uh, because, you know, they have, they get a following as well. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't, I, I, yeah, there's very few, you know, long-term cases anymore, you know, I, that I've seen, um, you know, outside, I, when I think of, 
the Jody Arias case and a few others. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah. I, I know what you're saying though about how you know you have people that you know vilify the the person, and uh, I, I don't think people are paying much attention to I got to tell you to the lawyers at all. Um, they're listening to the stories and stuff, and you know the lawyers that can kind of keep their interest are the ones that I, I think are the ones that are remembered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough one. Uh, now, in your in 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 the book Fire in the Big House, I was thinking. Um, so, that was an actual fire that happened in in the Ohio Penitentiary. Now, th- that was an overcrowded penitentiary. From what I understand, it was uh, it had almost doubled the amount of people it was supposed to have. Actually, triple. Oh. And uh, a lot, you know, they had forty five hundred, uh, uh, close to forty five hundred prisoners, and you know, it was originally you know meant for around fifteen hundred or so. And uh, that's that was the thing with the big house movement of that time period is you know basically filling them up with prisoners, uh, these large turreted you know almost castle like you know uh, edifices, and uh, you know it was way overcrowded. And it, one of the big problems too is uh, you know looking at the technology of the prisons at that time, the locking technologies, for instance. You know the cells didn't all open at once; you had to open each one with a key. Um, so, and there was there was no training, uh, very little training for um, uh, officers, and, uh, and they were very afraid to act on their own simply for the fact that it was a great job to have during the Great Depression. Um, and so they didn't do anything unless they were told to do it. You know, pretty much the officers. Wow. And, and so they, you know, they didn't know whether to let the guys out when the smoke started. You know, they were looking for the. Uh, warden and so forth i mean it was just a combination of a lot of er- errors and you had people that just gone into prison for lack of not paying child support that day that died um i mean there's a lot of stories like that you know people were just on their first day in prison and they died in this you know terrible fire so how many died in that was there 320 or something like that 320 and then there were two others that died there was kind of like a um uh, a, a, a riot that took place afterwards, and uh, a machine gun from the National Guard went off by mistake and uh, killed two people who were sleeping uh, in one of the cells. And so, you know, really uh, indirectly, 322. And then there were there was other others that were transferred to another prison that had another fire <laughs> that killed some of them. And so, you know, you you, you know, it depends what you add. But three tw- 320 died from smoke inhalation, basically. Hmm. So when you when you have something like that, now did they ever figure out why the fire started? Well, that was you know they, there was all kinds of reports at the time, all kinds of investigations, and initially they thought it was some type of electrical um, sh- uh, short or some electrical fire. But um, as it turns out, you know after a sequence of events, it turns out it was uh, an arson that went wrong. Um, four people were four of the prisoners were you know tied into this. And apparently they had lit the fire. It was supposed to go off while everybody was in the dining hall, but because of the winds and all that, it didn't go off until everybody was back locked in their cells. And so um, of the four that were kind of tied into this, two um, ended up taking their own lives, hanging themselves um, in the prisons. Um, so it took a while for them to figure out it was arson. They had a, you know, it wasn't until they found a, a kite being passed between two of these prisoners and it was brought to their attention. Wow. That's just crazy. And now, so 
I guess they had no regulations or very few regulations because you mentioned how it was uh, not only overcrowded, but um, you know it wasn't very sanitary and they didn't have adequate food and and things like that. Um, so they didn't have the regulation that they do now, or well, they had even had gas uh, lighters for their cigarettes. Um, there, there was a form of gas that they used that you know was definitely you know it was not fireproof, um, and they would often make their own fires in their cells to smoke out uh, bugs out of their mattresses and things like that. So when people smelled the smoke, you know they didn't you know pay much attention. It wasn't until they they saw the smoke. Did they get in trouble for having uh, the overcrowding and the and the and the you know, dirty conditions and the bad food. No, you know, most people didn't care. You know, most people, you know, were on the cusp of the Great Depression. And uh, and even today, people think, you know, they deserve what they get if they end up in prison. I mean, I'm in Texas. It's 95 degrees today. And uh, some of the prisons don't have air conditioning, you know. So uh, even today in the 21st century. And uh, in the winter, sometimes the toilets freeze. So you get ice, you know, because there's no heat. Um, and there's very few people that really care about those things. Wow. Um, it's kind of like my, my book uh, on convict cowboys. It starts in 1931 when they introduced this rodeo, and back then uh, they didn't think it would be a moneymaker or anything, but it turned out that people were willing to pay to watch you know, them try and, you know, these death-defying uh, feats that even a rodeo guy wouldn't do uh, in a uh, arena. And so the money that was made from this was used to buy them dentures and, you know, uh, artificial arms and legs and things like that. So it was for their recreation and also for their um, medical upkeep because Austin wasn't giving any money to the uh, criminal justice system in the 1930s. Hmm. Now, how do you think the prisons will fare in something like the COVID-19 that's going on? Oh, it's good. You know, those are absolute incubators. I mean... You already have, uh, you know, antibiotic-resistant uh, uh, tuberculosis and other things in that, and it's just, um, uh, you know, a disaster waiting to happen. And you have a lot of geriatric patients also that, you know, they have all, they have, like, separate units with a lot of the older patients that have a lot of medical problems. And, you know, uh, you know who knows how many of them um, have contracted it or how many have died. You know, um, I don't trust any of the record-keeping at this point. Um, because nobody really knows anything still about anything. <laughs> you know, they're just guessing. Um, but, you know, no, it's uh, it just, uh, I think, a disaster, you know, waiting to happen as far as, you know, deaths of prisoners, uh, because the prisons are crowded. Um, you, know, you know, America has like 5% of the world's population and, you know, probably 25% of the world's prisoners, you know, so yet crime has been going down for years, and so how do you explain it? Uh, you know, it's a, I guess, not a, even a, it's a, a, maybe a conundrum or, you know, a paradox. I, you know, it's just, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, they just, we, America has a love affair with prisons, you know, simply, you know, simply it. Uh, now, when you say that, do you think it's um, that they love putting people away, or do you think it's because it's like a business, and when you run it like a business, they look for numbers? Well, in, in certain communities, I think the business aspect is really important. If you notice, they usually build prisons out in rural areas, and it, you know, it supplies jobs to a lot of people in the area, and unfortunately it creates big problems. Most of the people 
that are in prison are from inner city somewhere, and most of the people that are out in the urban area, uh, rural areas, you know, are farmers and you know people that have really never met people like these prisoners before. Um, you know, which isn't great, but there, I don't think there's any uh, community that uh, would refuse to have a prison built in their backyard. Um, and they, you know, they they're constantly crunching numbers. I mean, uh, that that was the thing is uh, prisons when they were first uh, created. Um, in the uh, late 1700s, early uh, 1800s, um, they had to be self-sufficient um, in, in every respect. And the, the prison designs that were best at producing lots of goods um, very cheaply um, were, the, were the designs that survived. Um, and the ones that didn't, um, you know, of course, you know, fell by the wayside. So money has always been, a, and profit has always been a big part um, Today, though, I wouldn't say it's profit as much as, you know, just paying the bills, um, you know, just, you know, having them, for instance, raise crops that they can use, you know, for food, uh, raising livestock that can be used for food in a lot of prisons. Um, yeah, so, it, you know, it's a zero-sum game, that's for sure. Um, you, you know, you have uh, just trying to maximize the profits. The problem with doing that is... Uh, you know, you can't have uh, prison-made goods competing with free world goods. So you have a limited, um, you know, uh, audience to sell, you know, your goods to. So now, now you being a um, professor in criminal justice and criminology, um, if you could change anything about the system instantly, the whole justice system or the court system or the prisons, you've done a lot of work in the prisons for, for writing, what would you change about them? Well, I would obviously have um, a lot more um, alternatives to prison, um, you know, especially for nonviolent offenders. I mean, you have a really a small group of violent offenders that commit a large part of the violent crimes, and I, I, I think that they should be locked up and, you know, and uh, at least trained. I would introduce some, you know, education in the prisons. I mean, uh, a lot of the prisons used to offer courses where you get high school education, college degree, including the Texas uh, uh, prison system, but they don't, they don't do that anymore. They don't have these Pell Grants and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, preparing them to, to, uh, to get out. Um, and also, too, putting, like, a lot of them are, uh, you know, have been doing drugs or alcohol, you know, when they committed their crimes. And, you know, put a lot more effort towards that side of, um, you know, that side of the picture, like they do in Europe. Europe doesn't, Europe's one of the few continents probably where they don't have a, you know, an overcrowded prison system, although, you know, you have some problems in some places, but they rely on alternatives um, to, you know, putting, you know, people in jail. So, um, you know, it's it's been messed up for so long um, you know, you you have to get the interest of, uh, you know, the population. Um, and one of the, really, the, the critiques of the Obama era was that um, he didn't start working on criminal justice reform until the end of his, uh, you know, his terms. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, that's very important as much as, you know, fixing the infrastructure of the country and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. How easy do you think it'll be to convince Americans that uh, there are alternatives to prisons? Because I think that's a pretty tough road to hoe, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think um, as the younger generations um, who are less, you know, kind of uh, tied to any specific, you know, punitive environment, I think, you know, they're the ones that are going to be making the changes. 
Um, just like we're seeing the changes, you know, with gay marriage and all of that and, uh, you know, marijuana use and, you know, just having an open mind uh, to, you know, making it a better world. So I have a lot of hope for the, for the next generation uh, taking over from all the, you know, old white men basically that are, you know, just, you know, keeping everything as it is and really not changing anything, just giving lip service because it's so easy. Um, because as it is, older people really um, are, unless they're well-educated, um, are usually, you know, not in favor of, um, you know, any type of real big prison reform. And also, too, uneducated young people. Um, they, you know, they just have to understand, um, you know, the racial, you know, disparity um, that's in prisons and the death penalty. And right now, the decline of the death penalty is the best sign, at least in Texas, uh, the best sign that I've seen. Um, that now you have a majority of people that um, if they had the choice between executing someone or keeping them in jail for life, uh, they would go for the jail in life. Um, and I think, you know, looking at trials and things like that, people are much more educated about the mistakes that can be made um, for, you know, people being uh, innocent and being uh, executed. So I, I think, you know, those types of shows that we were talking about before, I think they, that's a very important um, role that they play. Um, so people are much more knowledgeable about, you know, DNA and uh, wit bad witness uh, identification and things like that. So, so when you actually write one of these books and you've been writing, um, do you hope, like, what is it that you want people to get out of your book? Like, when I, if I finish reading uh, um, one of your books, um, like The Fire in the Big House, what do you want me to walk away with? Well... First of all, I'd like you to walk away saying, um, uh, you know, I never knew that before. That was, you know, and really kind of, uh, you know, you learn something. So I want it to be a learning experience, obviously. Um, and I want, you know, and I write, um, I use an interdisciplinary, you know, type of um, uh, research. I tie in a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to appeal to a wide range of people. And um, and then I like to end it on a note where, um, you know, you can get some type of parallels with today. Um, so, that, you know, it's just not stuck in the 1930. So, you know, I like to follow it up to the present and try and, you know, you know, add that to the lesson. You know, what we're doing today as what we're doing in 1930, have we learned anything since then? Um, you know, that, so, you know, I'd like it to be, and I'd, I'd like it, of course, to be entertaining as well. So, so where do you see yourself going now? Like, what, what, if you plan on to keep writing books, I know you're doing yeah. on, the one on George Hassel, but are you going to keep on doing this sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I have probably my biggest book coming out in October, and it's called Power on the Inside, um, A Global History of Prison Gangs. And it's the first um, history of prison gangs around the world. No one's ever done that before. So I examined, uh, you know, prison gangs in, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand and, uh, Singapore, Thailand, uh, Native American prison gangs in America. I mean, it's very, very wide-ranging with a, a lot of historical um, uh, research. And um, so that, that that was a big undertaking. And, uh, you know, because I was the only – Antarctica is probably the only continent that doesn't <laughs> prison gangs, you know, that I know of. I mean, the penguins look like, you know, kind of shady characters. But um, – but anyway, this this book, you know, I worked on for you know kind of a, a couple of years along with another book, and um, 
it's got 80 pictures showing different prison gang members. It gets into, you know, the whole, you know, it, it, you know, while, while it can be used by researchers and academics, it also has a lot of really interesting stories um, where the impact of colonialism, for instance, on prison populations, places like, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand with the indigenous people, you know, that are locked up. I mean, who would have thought there's more people uh, in gangs in New Zealand uh, than in the army? You know, I mean, uh, a lot of this, you know, it, you know, people, you know, have no clue about. And uh, so anyway, I, I, you know, I, I enjoy, you know, doing this. But I'm, I'm thinking about, because I've done two books. I did a book called um, An Eye for an Eye, A Global History of Crime and Punishment. It's mostly from a non-Western perspective. And I'm happy to say it's been translated into Chinese and Croatian and Turkish and published in other parts of the world. Um, but I'm not... Uh, you know, I don't want to take these big projects. Uh, uh, this working on one murder case to me is, you know, is great. So I think I'm just going to write, um, you know, research uh, murder cases that have, you know, kind of, you know, some relevance. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I'm just wondering, when you write about the prisons, the gangs in the prisons, do people just take on the same habits that they do in the outside world? Like we have gangs in a lot of the major cities. Um, is it just? Is it the same? That's a very, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, basically, uh, most of the prison gangs um, were imported from the outside, but they're, you know, bringing in you know their gang allegiances and so forth. Uh, but there are prison gangs that were created, you know, in the inside originally, and um, you know, over time have kind of morphed as younger prisoners have got into it. And you know, just looking at the you know. Prison uh, gangs are very important to the running of prisons all around the world. You know, they, they call it informal governance. Um, so, you know, basically, uh, you know, law enforcement, uh, I should say correctional officers and their administrators have found it, uh, like in Latin America and uh, parts of Africa, and, um, you know, it would never be admitted in the United States, but, uh, you know, they let the, you know, the prison gangs have a, a lot more autonomy than you would think. And the prison gangs have a reason for not wanting to get into a gang war because what's important for them is protecting their revenue streams, um, in prison. And you can't do that when, you know, everybody's killing each other. So you, you need to have some freedom. Um, so, you know, Latin America, of course, has a huge, you know, uh, prison uh, overcrowding problem, has tons of, you know, prison gangs. Um, the kind of self-govern, um, hmm, so you know, and like also too, <laughs> yeah, 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 it, it really is. I mean, they create their, and they don't just, you know, get involved in that. In, in Latin America, for instance, some of them they provide um, health care and education. I mean, they might be teaching someone how to pick a lock. <laughs> it's some type of education, you know, well. and. Uh, so they take on all of this, and in Asia, in places like Thailand and uh, Singapore. Um, and even uh, Bali in uh, Indonesia, they all have prison gangs, and they all have you know their own different you know social networks, and they provide you know kind of a, I guess some type of balance within the prison system. Hmm. Now that's interesting. Now, so when we watch series on TV or shows or, or miniseries and Netflix, um, when when we talk about prisons. Um, what comes to mind to me is HBO had that Oz series. Um, right, right. Do, do you find that to be fairly realistic, or is that just totally off base? 
Um, yeah, I saw a lot of episodes of it. I, I, I won't say I've, I saw the whole series, but um, I think it had a lot of uh, reality, um, you know, basically showing, you know, the people that call the shots, for instance, um, the power that they hold. I mean, you have these racist gangs in prisons, for instance, where they might kill on site, but yet they might sell drugs to each other. You know, I mean, there's a there, prison gangs are very pragmatic, um, um, you know, so they might have a philosophy that they subscribe to, but they don't necessarily hold to it if there's something that they can benefit from. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things I came across um, is looking at people that, uh, these hybrid prison gangs, or looking at people that are mixed heritage. What prison gang do they join when they go in? Um, for instance, um, if you're an Orthodox Jew and, you, you know, and, and you're in prison, you know, and you need to join a gang or kind of, you know, so usually they end up with some type of white gang. Um, Asians usually go with Hispanics, Hispanic gangs. Um, so, you know, it's, it, you know, it depends on, you know, what part of um, the United States or whatever. And I was surprised to find the Native American gangs, you know, a number of them in places like Minnesota and Arizona, Washington State, and that sort of thing. And, and these, are for, me, for the most part, were imported um, from the streets. Uh, a lot of the gangs were imported from, um, you know, urban uh, areas like uh, Minneapolis and hmm. Phoenix and that, those types of places. So, so in a way, they get put in prison, and they kind of um, they kind of go to each other because they're familiar with their their own behaviors, right? Like as a gang. Well, that, but you know, more so for protection, protection, and also to um, you know, if you're with with a particular gang, um, you know, you're basically protected, you know, from you know sexual uh, attacks and that sort of thing, um, or being extorted. Uh, but you know, a, a lot of the gangs, you know, violate their own rules. Um, for instance, in South Africa, there's something called the number gangs, and uh, you know, they had a, actually they had uh, they were threatening um, the Blade Runner. Remember Oscar Pistorius, right, right. The, the runner? Yeah, when he went to prison, they told him, you know, they had to put him in um, uh, administrative segregation because they were going to go after him because he they thought he was too big for his britches, and. Um, you know, it, it just, uh, you know, they have these long traditions, and if you listen to their creation sagas and their myths and that sort of thing, um, if you trace them back, there's usually, um, you know, kind of a kernel of truth in that. But, you know, they make everybody, uh, you know, learn, you know, a particular uh, history of the gang. Uh, they enforce discipline within the gang. You know, like you can't go and just punch another inmate in most cases. Uh, but what's changing is the newer generations of um, uh, prisoners going in. They're less willing to, you know, follow the old rules. They used to have something called the convict code, where you don't snitch, you don't do this, you don't do that, um, you don't steal from another inmate. So the younger prisoners coming in, um, and also, too, a lot of the older prison gangs, um, they had blood in, blood out. You had to, you know, take blood to get in the gang, and the only way you got out is in the coffin, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and the newer people going in, they say, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And so you have uh, gangs like Tango Blast, uh, in, you know, in Texas, you know, has over 100,000 members. And, um, you know, basically they, um, you know, if they want to hit somebody, they hit somebody. Um, they join Tango Blast, and they go back to their original gangs on the streets. But if you join a gang in prison... Um, in most cases, you have to go back to that gang on the streets. You know, there's no, you know, separation. 
but we're seeing a lot of these rules changing, you know, as, you know, a different, you know, mentality is entering the prison system. Wow, that's interesting. Now, uh, now, do you have a website or a place that people can go to find out about you or your books and all that in one place? Uh, no, you know, I've been too lazy to do that, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, um, I mean, I have my, uh, you know, my, uh, my uh, email and Facebook, you know, I can be contacted on, and, you know, I don't mind that at all. And uh, Amazon has most of my books, and so they usually have, you know, some reviews or um, information on those, um, you know. But I, you know, I, I probably should do that. You know, I complain that no one buys buys the books, so <laughs> you sell more books that way. Yeah, I noticed there's a lot of entrepreneurial people doing uh, crime uh, related uh, topics, and I'm not very entrepreneurial. Although I did, Convict Cowboys was um, option for a TV series or a movie, so. So anyway, we'll see how that goes. Just just takes one. Um, anyway, so well, we'll have you linked up to our site as well, so people listening can do one click and uh, check out your books. Um, yeah, yeah. Our, our guest has been uh, Mitchell P. Roth, and we've been talking about a lot of his books. Recommend them a lot. And uh, Fire in the Big House is the one that kind of uh, I I touched onto. So um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks for reaching out. Uh, I was very happy to be here. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.